From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you on Sirius XM. We do two hours every week. This week, special week for us, we're back in the studio. We haven't been in the studio since March 2020. We've been together one time in those intervening, whatever it is, 20 months, but not in the studio. And we walked in today, very happy to be here. We recorded in here for about six years and glad to be back. This is Cade Massey hosting with all my colleagues and collaborators on Wharton Moneyball. Eric Bradlow over here on my left in his usual seat. He said, this feels like my seat. It is your seat. Feels like being back home. Audie Weiner, straight away, New York Yankees hat. We talked him out of biking this morning because he'd have to back back in the in the north, and that's bad risk taking, Audie. So, I'm aware of that, but it does have pros to be able to bike every day. Yeah, but biking in the dark in the on, in West Philly, and it's gotten a lot great. worse post pandemic. The roads are a lot worse. Is that right? That's right. That's interesting. In the city, I don't know. You know, the, the burbs, I think too, but the okay. city in particular. That means you should adapt your bicycling habits accordingly. We also have Shane Jensen here, and to the right, his usual seat. Shane, good to see you. Good to see you guys. It's great to be back in here. And importantly, we got Dan Simpkins here, man. Look at that in the in the in the in the command chair there, running the show. He counted us down. So good to see you, happy Dion Simpkins. Everything's better with a little Dion Simpkins in your life. Dion makes this thing happen every week. We give him tape six forty-five on a Tuesday night. Say, hey man, get this back up for serious by uh, you know eight o'clock in the morning tomorrow, and he does it. Matty D is here too, Matt, the boss man. Waving, going to keep us on the straight and narrow for the next two hours. Glad you guys are here. We're going to do a regular show in every other respect. We're going to talk about COVID in the first quarter. We're going to talk about all matters sports analytics in the middle two quarters. We're going to do an interview, super interesting uh, interview we have in the last quarter here, talking to Doug Fearing. Doug is the he runs Zealous Analytics. We'll talk about Zealous in the last quarter here, gentlemen. This time last week, I didn't even, I couldn't have even identified the Greek letter everyone's talking about for the last week. It's not a, you know, we know some Greek letters. We do some math. Even me, the least mathy one on the show, knows a few Greek letters. I didn't know this one. Doesn't show up in the math that often. Omicron, what in the world? Can you guys update us on what's going on? What your understanding is? This thing emerges a few days ago, and I feel like the new information since hasn't exactly been you know, rushing out. We don't know a lot more now than we did four or five days ago, at least as of this morning. Well, I mean, it, it came a, a, on a, on us like a, a ton of bricks, and that, of course, means that a lot of it's confusing. There was South Africa had a, a, had almost no cases of any COVID, and all of a sudden they got a, a whole bunch, and they did some sequencing, and they were all a new variant, and a variant that seems to have quite a few more um, discrepancies with the older variants, whether the original or the alpha or even the delta. It's not, just put it in perspective, the number that they're talking about is 30, uh, 30 variations on the spike and 50 total. There are thousands of, of, of bases and, and, and attributes that make up these viruses. So on a percentage basis, it's absolutely minuscule. There's a thought that this might hurt um, the ability of a vaccine to prevent infection, potentially prevent serious illness, and therefore it is a what they call a variant of concern. So hold it real quickly, but you're saying as a, as, a, as a percentage of potential mutations, it's small. But what seems to me 
the number of mutations is large relative to what they've seen. And most of the reaction, it seems to me that most of the reaction so far has been because of the number of mutations. There was this, you know, there was some volume out of South Africa, but not so much that we don't, we don't know why the volume exists. Mostly the reaction is, man, look at that thing. That's a lot of mutations. Yeah, I was just going to comment that there is a chance that's not zero that Omicron is good news. Now, let me play out the scenario under which it's good news, okay? It's more contagious, that they believe. But they don't have the full data on that, but let's assume for the moment that it's more contagious than the Delta variant, which was already a lot more contagious than the Alpha variant and the Beta variant. Let's, there's anecdotes out of South Africa that the symptoms are mild. Let's imagine, uh-huh. let me just play this out for a second. It's a lot of ifs. If it's more contagious, if the symptoms are mild, and here's the last, the biggest if, if it provides protection against the more potentially more severe Delta variant, you could imagine a scenario where actually it saves lives. So I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying if the data as we know now, right now they're saying it's more contagious, that means it could become a more dominant variant. And also if it's less severe in terms of hospitalization and death, we could be in a better situation. Matter of fact, the world certainly could be in a better situation. And also I believe in science. So what has Moderna said and Pfizer said? They've said that they can come out with a new vaccine that actually is specifically tailored to Omicron. And so I'm, yes, I'm concerned. Any new variant I'm concerned about, because I'm triply, I have three shots. Maybe I'm going to need another shot now for Omicron. But from from the world's perspective, this could actually be a better thing. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think it kind of falls along. I mean, you know, at least, you know, my very basic immunology knowledge, like pre-COVID, was that, you know, viruses, when they do tend to evolve tend to go to you know that there's almost like kind of a negative there's a trade-off between how infectious they are and how deadly they are right i mean you can't you don't want to kind of up as from the virus's perspective from a kind of a selection perspective you don't want to be both very deadly and very infectious because you kill your host too quick let's say it kills everybody instantly so so i mean you know if omicron kind of represents like sort of a movement along that kind of spectrum towards something that is more infectious but you know less deadly you know, if it's making essentially COVID become more and more like the common cold or something like that, that that would be that would be a good result. Well, that's historically what viruses do. They they become more easily transmitted, but also weaker. And I would guess that's probably what would be happening here. There's, the problem is, is that I think a lot of what we're hearing is not reliable. And that, that, that I said lots of ifs. Yeah. And that and then therefore, a lot of the bad news is not reliable. A lot of the good news is not reliable. There's, there was a doctor who said I, that the people who, who they she saw with without with with this case were all very mildly sick. But it's very early. What are we what are we seeing? I mean, we don't really have reliable data on Alpha that's been around yeah. for a year and a half. How are we expected to have so, reliable so there, data there, on Omicron? There is a few things that are reliable. Whatever, I think the, the the genetic mapping, I think they that's know reliable. what's going on. And they're definitely a Delta had about 10 bases on the spike that were different. This is 30. But so, let's just that's good news from the sense of Pfizer and Moderna already working on it. Sure. They're, they're they were working on Delta II. We never got it, right? No, so, but they're working on this one. And they even said, maybe we'll need to use it, maybe we won't. But right. they're, they're working. So they also claim, Hold which on, is... clarification, working on what? 
Take work on a, the vaccine. A, a vaccine, vaccine specific to Omicron. Omicron. Right. So, the, you can, this, so what do you mean we never got it for Delta? They claimed that they were making a specific mRNA no, vaccine for Delta. We never got it because the initial, you know, having three shots, it turned out the initial vaccine was protective against the Delta variant. Okay. They didn't need to actually launch it. I'm not saying there wouldn't have been one that was more protective. There like, would have uh, been. In other words, they're already working you know, toward working in case of the kind of nightmare Correct. scenario where the vac- our current vaccines are not protective against Omicron. Real quickly, a question on that. How far down the pipeline do are we already because of the base we have in the vaccine? They, they've said that they've, they've worked about 30, started about 30 days ago. They're saying within about 70 days, they could be pumping out the vaccine, the specific vaccine. So that we, for have, we have quite a foundation from the original vaccine for anything that comes. It's next. it's yeah. really regulatory. They were able to do this. The whole yeah. genius oh. of the hey mRNA, guys, what is mRNA. this? What, and I I belabor this point every week. What does this sound like? The flu. <laughs> yes. Every year they pump out a flu vaccine right. that's based on the base that we've had before, and it's okay. an educated guess of what's going to be good. Okay. And you know, it's it's just something in our lives. Okay. The problem with with it, the analogy is that it may not be necessary. And obviously, Moderna and Pfizer are money making enterprises, and they would love us to take new ones every year because that's what they do, and they get to get a nice fee every time they do it. You are correct, Eric. I think the reason why we didn't see a specific virus vaccine for Delta was it turned out not to be deadly. We thought it would be. Um, one of the things that we scroll back, Pfizer's test and, and Moderna's test of efficacy was on active infection. It, there was no one in either the control arm or the treatment who arm who died or even got severely ill. And, and therefore... The information that we had about Pfizer and compared to the vaccines compared to nothing is it prevented infection. When Delta came along, it erased that presumption. It was this incredible, happy discovery that the vaccine, the T cell, they say it has to do with the T cells in your lungs and your blood cell, that provided wonderful protection. 20 times, I think, is the aggregate figure when you control for age against serious illness and death. And this was a revelation. I actually think it should have changed more of our behaviors, um, but it 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 hasn't. Mostly because I think active infection is still quite pre- prevalent. Lots very, of people very. are getting, and I'm, I'm I talked about it a couple weeks ago. I got it. I had two vaccines and a and a booster, and boom, you okay, get it. So hold on. Let's while you mentioned this, let's do a little bit more on this because we were having a bit of this conversation before we walked in this room. You said you think it should have changed our behavior more than it actually did, and. I understand that, and in general, I'm sympathetic to that. However, there is still this small but unknown probability of some severe thing happening, including the possibility of long COVID. I mean, we, do we believe in long COVID? Is long COVID a thing? Certainly, I mean, we have there are medical centers who have opened clinics. I mean, like serious medical centers who have opened clinics to address this. So when we say we should modify our behavior, are there is there still a reasonable ground to stand on that say, you know, I just I'm going to protect myself in ways that I can from the worst possible outcomes, even if it's small, because it's ambiguous. And I just, why, why take that risk? Is there any, maybe the more relevant question, just quickly, is, it, isn't the more relevant question, what's the probability of long COVID? In other words, I think, I don't know of any virus. There's long pneumonia. There's I, long, I, lots of different illnesses. Well, but, 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 I... I I think a lot of what we're calling long COVID is perhaps long-term health consequences of battling an infection. Right. Like, I mean, I don't know if it's really something that's so, COVID-specific. I mean, there are all, you know, well-documented okay, long-term good. consequences of battling of, of any kind of bad good. infection I in wanna, your system. I want to add one other thing 
to Eric's question, which is, I worry about the illusion of precision when you ask for the probability on this thing. It's like, do... You're right. So we don't know the exact probability, and so it's a little bit silly to go looking for it. But at the same time, do we don't want to overreact to too small a probability. I'm, ask, I'm literally asking, what's the optimal behavior in the face of, to the extent that there is a, a risk of a serious thing happening, small but ambiguous probability? I can only speak for me personally. Everyone has a different threshold, right? If someone told me that there was a 5% or greater probability of there being a long-term effect of COVID... 5%. I would say to myself, I really don't want COVID. I really, really don't. In other words, no, if it was no, 1%, agreed. no, that's, by the way, I still have to get COVID, which is not for certain. I have to have a serious possible version, maybe to get long term COVID. So there's that probability. There might be three probabilities that have to be multiplied. But to me, a 20 to 1 risk ratio, that would be barely acceptable for me. Mm -hmm. Let me jump in here. I have a lot to say on the subject. <laughs> Getting COVID. There is long COVID in, the, in a certain sense. People do lose their sense of smell and taste, and they don't get it back. And that is absolutely done happened to COVID. You cannot deny it. There's lots of other symptoms that people are wondering are whether are long COVID, and we really don't have data, good data on it. And the data that we do have is, is highly controversial. So if the fatigue that people claim sets in, the fatigue experts, and we have many here, I work with some of them, we should get them in the studio. They're saying they're not seeing, they see people complaining of it, but they're not seeing rates that are sufficiently high to know that it is a long COVID. So, COVID. For, the smell, for the smell and taste thing where it is relatively unambiguous, mm -hmm. what are the, what are the so rates the there? The numbers are there. So here's Condition, two problems Conditional on getting COVID, what's the probability so, of having mm -hmm. to lose taste and smell thing? 95% get it back in three months. So 99% have gotten it back in a year. And 99% of the people who lost it? Yes. Yes, who lost so it. So, again, that's not even the same. Like, I'm that's saying right. conditional so getting about COVID. about 1% seem to be having, losing their sense of, or, or so, sense of taste so permanently. So, 1%. Well, so far. It's 1% of people who get COVID that have a loss of taste and smell. And then it's 1% of them where it's permanent at least, or it's, a year, it's, uh, it's at least a year. a year out. It's about 1 in 200 COVID cases. I see. So, now, here's the issue. And this is a, the country. All this data? pre-vaccine. We have no data on vaccinated people's results. We are terrible at data collection. It is just unconscionable in this country how, how bad we are at this. And other countries too, because vaccinated cases tend to not get recorded because they're mild. Mm -hmm. So when I got COVID, my biggest fear was this loss of smell happened and whether it would not come back and how long it would come back. And it's a genuine fear. There, and so you have to think about that. And, it, and I'd love to have data on it. I will say that almost everybody, many, many people who, who are getting a vaccinated case of COVID do lose their sense of smell. That is very common. It does seem to be the taste is dropped out a little bit, and, and, but I don't have any recovery rates. I don't know all these things. Real quickly, we talked about this. We've talked about this a lot in the past, but we talked about it last week in particular, that the, the answer is some kind of panel or at the very least some kind of random data collection. And so short, short that, we're just never going to get what we need. But those things seem to be doable. We're just not doing them. Yeah, I think we're now also in the place where I, I, you guys keep reminding me of the person over at Penn Medicine that said to us, you, you know, there might be a lifetime supply of lifetime amount of boost of a vaccine that your body can take. I just don't remember the doctor's name over in the medical school that's, that said this. Fagenbaum, thank you. Um, the concern I have now is let's imagine I do need a different shot for Omicron. Can I get it now as quickly as I need to? Like, I know when I got my booster. So now the question is, like, I've not heard a lot of people talking about, let's call it vaccine interference. 
is there vaccine interference? Can I just lump a fourth shot onto the three I've had already? Is that okay? I, I just don't know. And matter of fact, I'm not sure they're going to, will they do enough trials on the boosted to know? Because, you know, I for me personally, not for the country, like I want to know, is there vaccine interference for the boosted? That's what yeah. I want to know. Am I going to know that? You know, we're, we're not, not going to do a full factorial design of every well, single combination of uh, vaccine I mean, I and to, booster. That's I what say, I want. Yeah. There's been very little discussion about the continuing pumping your immune system with with damage. I mean, that's not your doing with with something to work on. And anti-inflammatories cause reactions. I mean, in a certain fraction of people. I'm I don't I'm with you. I think that there's little data and we should be cautious about continually um, giving an anti-inflammatory response. Maybe it's just like the flu vaccine, in which case we do it every year and doesn't seem to be much problem. Um, but maybe it's different. Those vaccines are a lot less effective, too. So perhaps it's well, also the, well, you they're effective. They're uneffect- ineffective because we don't know which flu vaccine to protect against. Not because if we knew the flu vaccine that we're getting, you can generate them. Yeah, no, well. I, I guess it's sort of I'm envisioning a covid future where there's like, you know, three or four variants around. I mean, you know, in any given year, I mean, we're going to have to stop using Greek letters. We'll have to start naming them like hurricanes or something like that. But uh, but regardless, um, in which case it might be kind of more of a guesstimate every year as well. But, I, you know, I agree that the, the, there are certainly differences between the flu and COVID and the vaccine. We have, we have a lot of wealthy people, extraordinarily wealthy people in the United States. Let's call it the Gates Foundation. It could be, you know, it could be uh, Elon Musk, whoever it happens to be, Jeff Bezos, who do lots of things that are good for society. Couldn't wa- They do other things that aren't as good, but they do things. They give a lot of money away to philanthropy. Why couldn't someone extraordinarily wealthy fund a random sample of people and actually you know, enhance our knowledge through data collection. This would be one one thousandth of one percent of Jess Bezos' annual income if he wanted to fund data collection. And why can't they? Why can't someone? If the government won't do it, why doesn't a private citizen through a foundation just do it? I think the difficulty is getting the the infrastructure in place to do it. Uh, Amazon's got infrastructure all over the place. They can well, do this. I, I mean, we don't have a national health service. We don't I don't have, want one. We, I'd we rather have Amazon do it. I, I, you actually, I think you disagree. I don't think Amazon has the capability to interact with people's medical records. I mean, no, that's I mean, what you I do. Mean, the, the, the countries that have national health services, like the UK and Israel... You were sort of saying that they're not actually, you know, I mean, that's not... They might I mean, be. that probably does the make UK collection... The but, 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 I mean, you. I, I felt like we were saying, like, just a bit ago that, like, you know, even out of those countries, we don't have good data on long COVID or anything. Like, like, is it just that they're not analyzing it, but they actually are collecting the data? I mean, I, I don't... I, I, think, I think that's hard because their samples have 4,000, 10,000 people in it. Once you cut down the number of people who have COVID, then you start to look at these numbers are much smaller. Things just go down really dramatically lower. I think that we'll eventually learn these things. I mean, one thing I just thought about this, we have had at Penn, we've had over a thousand, I think it's 2,500 positive cases since the school began, since the COVID began. 2,500 Penn students have tested positive or faculty or staff at Penn. We, they're here. <laughs> My God, I'd be, love to just, just, we just need a sample of them. We don't even need to go to all of them. We just a sample 100, find out how many of them have long COVID. It would just seem to me that, you know, we're, let's also, you know, we're a business school. If you think about optimal allocation of resources, we as a country, as everybody, we can keep spending hundreds of billions of dollars with incomplete information, 
or we could spend a smaller amount of money to actually collect information that would allow us to actually target our resources better. Mm. I'm, I'm just surprised that whether it's someone in government hasn't realized that incomplete information leads to wasted resources. I'm com- surprised. Well, I mean... The government no. collectively certainly has not realized no, no, no. that little uh, tidbit I know that, over but I'm the just saying, history this is of humanity. Something that could end COVID a lot quicker if we had better information. It's just well, shocking it, to it, me. But I, it's, I, it can. Let me just throw out one piece of information uh, that we talked about this in the show about why the CDC is purporting ninety nine point nine percent now. Ninety nine point nine percent of sixty five right. plus. So, it, which is crazy because um, that doesn't make any sense. We talked about that, and right. now I saw a report saying Pennsylvania says you have the data all wrong. The numbers in Pennsylvania yeah, I mean, are I mean, way I, lower. And there's surveys that are done. I mean, they're just surveys. I'm not sure what the design, which indicate that the elder, the elderly uh, vaccinated over 65 rate is between 80 and 90 percent, not 99. Yeah, I, I think one, one of the main things that's inflating that is kind of the vaccine tourism. I don't I think because we, we have no real I, I think that was happening a lot especially early on when the vaccine was not available in other countries. And every person who's... Co- I, I know of people that came to this country to get a vaccine, and they got that card, same as us. They entered the database, same as us. They probably put an American address in there, same... You know, whatever. And they go in the numerator, well, but they, they're not the... You know, they're not in the denominator. Talk, if you want to continue to talk about bad data. So I went on the CDC site today, which I do every day that we're, ta- we're taping our show, and... Between November 22nd and 25th, which is consistent with how it's been. Actually, the number of deaths in the United States per day had gone up mm-hmm. to twelve to 1,500 per day. Do you want to know, show about bad data? Anybody want to guess what the number was for November 28th, which is the Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend? Zero. Yeah. It's 108. Yeah. Now, come on. Look. There's we're, no. We're, I'm just we've saying, known that. We've known day of the. Yeah, yeah. Effects. I mean, even the New York no, Times that, has a even, little like, hey, it, it's the holiday. Don't trust this I know, data. But even kind of that thing. number, it's just. Look, there are ways to deal with this. I mean, people survey and sample all the time. It's remarkable to me that the CDC would report a number, because let me just say, here's what happens. It affects the seven-day moving average dramatically. It affects what's reported. It affects people's reactions to but what's reported. Is it the seven-day moving average of a solution? Not a solution, but a mitigation well, of that issue? Well, it helps somewhat. It's smooth. You want it to smooth it. Somewhat. And even the New York Times, again, has said we, we have downweighted, like in their current moving averages... They have very much downweighted, like you know, the last few days because of the hall before because of the holiday data. So it's not even affecting, like you know, I mean, the New York Times says I think it's like nine hundred or so deaths per day. That, that, in the US. that might be the number. It's not being pulled. It, it's not being. Pull- that's not just because they had like a hundred and eight on Thanksgiving Day or something like that. And that's, I mean, it's been going down. It continues to still go down, by the way, even as cases go up. It, we're continuing to see that decoupling. It's not true, by the way. Is in, that, is that uh, no, true? Since no. We're, we're Between up... November... Look, let's eliminate Thanksgiving for a minute, which was November 25th. Good. Between the 22nd and 24th, I looked at it just today, the number of deaths was between twelve to 1,500 per day, which is higher than it had yeah. been, not lower. Twelve to 1,500 per day, I think, for the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th of November. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's yeah, I don't, they're showing... I don't know, Eric. They're showing CDC. I'm seeing a, a continued decline yeah. in deaths in the in the last. I mean, today is lower than the day before, for example. Um, anyway, so that is an that decoupling. We were really wondering. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to our earlier conversation when it's like you know, I mean, we all have our personal, you know, we all have our personal kind of decision making that factors in long COVID and our chances and our own personal, you know, kind of situation. But as a public, like government public policy, what, 
what should we, you know, when we say COVID's bad or COVID's still going or, you know, whatever, should we be talking about cases? Should we be talking about deaths? Should we talk about hospitalizations? You know, I mean, if especially if, 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 if say, um, Eric's dream scenario is, is, you know, Omicron takes over. And I basically, have lots of ifs, and, but yeah. If Omicron takes over and all this, I mean, what, what, what are the characteristics of Omicron? You know, if it's swept through the whole population, we'd have a ton of cases, but no more deaths. I think, yeah, I, I think here's the thing we know. If we had accurate tracking of the number of cases, okay, we know there is a relationship that's been pretty stable. Maybe Omicron will change that between cases and deaths. Mm-hmm. I think we know that cases lead to more mutations, so that could potentially be a bad thing. I think I would be thrilled if we could just have a random sample. Forget hospitalizations and death, which might be easier to measure. I would be happy if we could just measure the fraction of cases among the vaccinated and unvaccinated people, which would at least provide us some benchmark about, uh, even if it's the total amount of COVID that's out there in the population. Because at some point, that is going to matter. In other words, if this is going to move from a pandemic to an endemic, the total amount of COVID, the number of people that actually continue to contract it, is going to have to go down at some point. It can't remain 100,000 plus a day, if that's even the right number. And actually, our expectations are there won't be another variant and another variant and another Mm -hmm. variant. That will continue. Yeah. I have nothing to say about the conversation because I had to step out, but I do want to make a quick announcement. (laughs) My daughter just got engaged. Oh, Oh, that's very nice. Congratulations. Congratulations. Mazel tov to Charlie and Rivka. And uh, and they just called me and said, urgent, I had to leave. And that's very good news. Uh, That's (laughs) exciting. Congratulations to you, Adi, as well. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Um, She's not the donut baking. She is the donut baking, the Sugani Hanukkah baking donut girl who... Happily made us all some well, tra- some treats for, per- for the studio. Perfect timing then. Listen, before we wrap up, let's just make some casual forecasts on what we do think is going to come to pass with Omicron. Interestingly, our colleague, Phil Tetlock, and some of his collaborators, you know, we, we all know him from many mm-hmm. ways, but the world knows him from his work on super forecasters and forecasting yeah, the good, ju- good Judgment Project. The Good Judgment Project and, and before. He's just a phenomenal social scientist. But one of his latest efforts is around forecasting events that are unquantifiable and can they use some of the same techniques they've been using to improve forecasting on more traditional events to these kind of almost unknowable things and, and this is not a crazy version of it it's like no. so so what would we say i don't know how to make this question precise enough to make it interesting but I want, i'm curious what y'all think is going to come from omicron and i have i have a position but how can we make this how can we make this precise um Let's say, to what extent are we going to be talking about it as a problem come, you know, early January, six weeks from now? Is Omicron going to be, is it going to be affecting our lives? I guess one way to think about it. Is Omicron going to be affecting our lives in the middle of January? I'll go first. Why not? I mean, I think the answer is is yes, (laughs) but I'll say why, because I think if it's more contagious, which there is some evidence, let's assume that's true. There's 40% of the U.S. pretty much that's still unvaccinated. And so it'll be part of our lives because it's going to have a massive effect on the unvaccinated. It's going to make it even worse for the unvaccinated. And then there are ancillary costs to all of us, you know, 
policies that try to protect the unvaccinated that affect the vaccinated. So, yes, I do think it will be a big deal come January. Less so for people that are triply boosted, boosted and double vaccine. But yes, for the population as a whole, yes, I do. Well, I'm going to agree, but disagree. So I'm going to agree that I think we'll be talking about it. And I agree that it'll be affecting our lives. But I don't believe it's because Omicron deserves it. (laughs) <laughs> I think that it will be maybe as as contagious as Delta, maybe a tad bit more. I predict that it won't have appreciable differences on the effectiveness of a vaccine to prevent it. Um, and I think that and I've seen we've seen this with so many things with COVID initial ideas, initial impressions, the initial judgments that we make have immense sticking power. And we just don't diverge off of that. I can tell you, I mean, there's, I mean, we should almost have a whole show devoted to that. Things that we know now that we didn't do, didn't know in the beginning, that we still act as if it, the original uh, impressions were, were correct. An example. Okay, the danger to children. There was a huge concern in the beginning with multi-inflammatory syndrome, Kleindeffer syndrome, These that if you got COVID, even though you weren't likely to die, you'd have a, a, a terrible reaction to it. None of that has held up. The danger to children is almost negligible. I mean, it's, it's certainly less than the flu, and, and it's basically ignorable. So we, we didn't get away from that because I can tell you I know countless numbers of parents of small kids who are genuinely terrified of their kids getting COVID. Okay. Suppose it turns out to be 50% more contagious but equally deadly as Delta. Ooh, that's bad. That's very possible. I don't think that's I don't I mean obviously possible. I mean I would put that as less than 50%. I probably put it less than less than 10%, but oh, possible. Yeah, right. I still, think, I still think we'll be talking about it in January a lot because, I mean, A, the media is going to talk, you know, we're going to be talking will, about Will it be affecting our lives substantively? I hope not, but I, I worry that we're going to have like another wave of kind of like lockdown kind of reactionary mm-hmm. type wow. stuff. Wow. Yeah. I believe it. Okay, I'm de- definitely in the minority here and I don't have much foundation for this, but I'll give you where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm, going, I'm shorting Omicron. I'm shorting Omicron. I think it's going to come and go. I mean, look, who knows? There's wide uncertainty. But my point forecast is we're overreacting, not overreacting in a substantive sense, but I think we're overreacting relative to what we're going to know after the fact. Mm -hmm. This comes from a couple places. One, it really sounds like there's not that much evidence. There's alternative explanations for why it did blow up in South Africa, like a super spreader event as opposed to just contagiousness. Also, I'm a little suspicious, not suspicious, but... I think there's information in how much less we know over the last week than I would have expected. Considered the number of times something has come up related to the pandemic, and within a couple days, it's really emerged as a thing. I think rarely has something come up, and then a week later, we don't really know much more than we did initially. Anything that really mattered, I think, had a quick quick follow-on. I'm, I'm, I think there's information in how little less mm-hmm. we've learned. That's my wife's theory, is that Somebody might know how severe it is, and the fact that if it was really severe, yeah. they would have have an obligation to at least warn us more. Why is this there this big delay? Yeah, I, I, agree I with will that. say that we've already identified people who have been exposed in, who had this Omicron in October, and it's all over. And uh, <clears throat> it's not just in South Africa, no, and it's been around for probably a couple months already. Good, and we would have seen severe deaths already. Okay. Good. Well, I'm, I'm, let's end. Let's consider that a happy note relative to other possible notes. And we'll end Q1 there. That's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. The whole crew is in here. Audi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradle. This is Cade Massey. We're in the studio. Might sound a little different. 
we're all masked up. The policy here at the University of Pennsylvania is that you don't get into rooms together without being masked up. So we're masked up. But we took the windscreens off the mics and probably a little bit better than our usual remote sound. We'd love to hear from you guys. You can reach out to us, our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. Probably the easiest and best way to reach out to us. Send us your questions, ideas, taunts, taunts, whatever you got. We're happy to hear from you. 15 yards for taunting, though. <laughs> no, no, 15. You get, you, get a, you get forward 15 yards. You get 15-yard bonuses for reaching out in any form. We'll take you in email form as well. It's our mailbag, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We uh, will pick up a mailbag question we, here in a minute. We, we, we read everything we get. We get as many as we can on the air, but we read everything we get and we love hearing from you. So, so get back to us, please. Guys, we're going to hold off on football for the third quarter. We're going to talk about a few other topics this time, beginning with baseball. We did some baseball last week. Hall of Fame ballot came out. Um, we, I guess we don't have data. We have a ballot or two in. We'll we'll track that as we get a little closer. It's a long ramp. Early data suggests the baseball writers are going to be as irrational as usual this year. Shocking. You know, that early data suggests just that, and I had this idea to combat that. You, one thing that we often do when we evaluate teams is we look at the quality of their performance of, of their opponents, and we judge that. Mm-hmm. I think we should weight the baseball ballot based on how absurd it is. In other words, if you're generally inconsistent, obviously you can have individual variability, but yeah. sort of generally consistent or and not making crazy decisions, then you get full weight. And if you're absurd, you just get junked out of the whole thing with a low weight. And that seems to be what... How would what, we quantify absurdity? I don't know, some sort of divergence metric, some sort of relative entropy or some sort of... Oh, so like, like, like between the divergence the from yours. Yeah, so in other words, you take the average scores and you look to see whether someone's so so crazily different than what the mass of everyone else is doing. Yeah. That they're not serious. And it, but this is often done in, so in that won't well, help for, That won't help for like Clemens or Bonds where it's like a collective... Well, we saw this one consensus ballot. is crazy. Right, we saw this opinion. one well, ballot where someone did Sosa... Shane, you can't say the consensus is crazy on your opinion, I mean, that's I that's... can and will, but I mean, I, right? I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I can and will. Though I, I, I concede your point that you know the consensus We're, almost by definition well, is not Adi's crazy. using right? crazy as the definition yeah. of crazy. No, being but out, yeah. Yeah. Call, I don't think Adi yeah. would call the following crazy. If I was a baseball writer, I could. It would be very reasonable for me. You can disagree. I'm not going to vote for Bonds or Clemens or A Rod. Or Big Poppy. No I'm not voting for any four of them. And you'll have a lot of lot of company. Yeah, that and that's that. fine. But you... to me, I don't think that's not going to be divergent nope. from a block of individuals. It might be from the sep- mean, or, yeah. from the mm-hmm. mean. But but I'm not. There's a segment of people that are exactly with me, and they're never going to vote for those four. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you know, I mean, really, what you're looking for, I guess, is some kind of like mechanistic consistency to how right. you generate yeah. your ballot, yeah. and. You know, I'll write out my decision if, tree if, for if, you. If, if you're going to diverge from just kind of like obvious, perfor- like on-field performance metrics, right? Which you, you know, I'm willing to then, do. Then, then you know, it has to perhaps be due to steroids. But then we're seeing ballots where, like, you know, people are like including Clemens, but not including a Rod. I'd find that and inconsistent. That, and that, that's that's insane. Inconsistent. Or including or, Sosa, I mean, not in, Bonds. I mean, yeah. well, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, more immediately relevant is the work stoppage that everyone's expecting, mm-hmm. whatever, midnight. To, I mean, this We're taping on Tuesday yeah. evening, Tuesday afternoon, and we're facing this. Now, I, my consumption of it from afar is that this is more or less inevitable and probably going to blow over eventually. 
What is a deeper take on what's going on and what should we expect over the next couple of months? Well, I mean, you know, given that the season is several months away, it's kind of like, I, I think, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of, I think almost everybody would predict that there is going to be some kind of lockout, uh, you know, that they're not going to come to agreement in, in, in the near future. They have time, you know, even with a lockout before it starts affecting, you know, kind of the, 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 the start of the next season. So I think the real kind of, you know, kind of modeling thing or probability that you want to talk about is whether the season starts on time. Okay. I think um, the problem so, so whether there's a protracted lockout or not. I think the problem is is that let's say the season doesn't start on time and only ends up going 120 games. Mm-hmm. They better watch out because they might the fans might t- signal we prefer a 120 game season rather than 162. So be careful <laughs> if you actually give the give the fan data on a shorter season. We may take it. How yeah. are they going to? What does that mean? Prefer it? How how is that going to be measured? Uh, I would rather pay one third less for my season tickets and go to a. As a matter of fact, I'd be I'd go to more games because they're more meaningful games. If I went to 120, I'd rather the season only go for four or five months as opposed to going from April to the end of October. I would prefer it. I might. Pre- I didn't say me. I'm just pretending a fan. I could imagine someone preferring a 120 game season as opposed we to We have had short seasons before. It's not new. There's been strike and COVID seasons and. I don't think there was much. Yeah, I, I mean, it certainly would b- go against the trend in most other sports of like shortening things. Even though, I mean, baseball of all sports, I think would would merit, you know, perhaps merit it. Um, I, I mean, they do. I think they run. The, I, I think they run the even greater risk of just turning off fans. You Which know, they don't again. have a lot they, of already. Right, and I mean, like right. at a time when fans, you know, I think baseball is already kind of struggling with their fan base because the, the you know the on field product is has gotten you know not not as watchable over the last few years. So I think they they should be conscious of that. Um, whether they are or not, I mean, I'm not. That, I don't have much confidence in the leadership to kind of recognize that. Who but. does that? Is that does that? asymmetrically affect one side more than the other? Does that, mm, it I, must be on the owners in some sense because they have the longer term They should. They, yeah, that's right. They should have, you know, and I mean like it's, it, they, they should have that longer term vision because I mean the players, especially in this kind of guaranteed contract world of baseball are going to get kind of paid no okay. matter what. So, I mean the players should be conscious of it too because if the owners start losing money then that is going to have a trickle down effect of course yeah. of future contracts but to what extent are we teeing up for a big fight here versus this isn't going to be a big fight? We typically know that about these union negotiations, sports union This one sounds I mean at least what I've read sounds like it's going to be a pretty big fight. I I I think in in part um you know because there's a lot of you know there's they're going to have to close a few loopholes that baseball teams have been using. Like, there's been a lot of manipulation of service time and stuff like that. That's been happening for years. That hasn't been right, up. Right, that right. But that is, it's becoming more and more bold, I think. Or at least, like, they've been, you know, okay. I think those kind of loopholes. But that's an easy been, one to straighten up in some way. That's a lot I mean, easier I, than I mean, the I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but yeah. But it's not, perhaps, it's not like an issue like the, I'll make this up, the players want 53% of the yeah. revenue and the owners are at 42%. It's the, not the like players, that. The players are very well compensated in baseball. Right. And even even rookies. The problem is, is that they're held back and they're held back to the detriment of many many players this is the service time. this is the service time because they hold them back until they really need them and then they can they can tie them up for six years now when you have them let's just be precise about the service time thing the deal is that they they get they get to keep these players for certain their first number x number of years in the league Mm -hmm. at a very reduced rate 
and then they manipulate yeah. when they bring them into the league and that clock starts. Yeah, and there are some limitations. I mean, you can't keep a, a player in the minors forever without having to essentially release them. Yeah. Um, and so there are limitations, and, and but there are some exploitations as well. Players but, and, who are, and there's some exploitations on the part of entire franchises, right? And this is, I think, what's... What's, what's an really, example, Shane? Well, the Tampa Bay Rays, basically... Or, or the you, you know, Hold on, we, laud, we laud the Rays all the time. We laud the Rays through analytics. They do it well. Yeah, yeah, but mm-hmm. through analytics. So again, the rationale for Hold on, what you, do they what do they what do they do as a franchise? Make it more precise for me. I was about to. Um, yeah. So basically, they um, you know. Players get paid only after essentially their for first five years, right? No, I mean if you can play five years, you get big arbitration. I mean it's and it's a lot. I, yeah, I, I'm going to have to be more con- more concise and quick with this. They by si- signing and holding only young players, right? You if if they if they essentially never pay a free agent and they only continue to cycle through young right. players, they are essentially salary capping their team. Right, because well, it's that's, only that's, hold up, that, that doesn't sound like service time manipulation at all. That's just it's, a it, way. But no, of, it's, it's not service time manipulation. It's using the service time to essentially impose a salary cap. But okay, I think I think also, Kate. Smart, I, no, but I think there's some to, other thing. I think up, there's a number sure. of games someone plays in a year affects whether that year counts. So I think what they so, can do but, is but, some, bring someone up for only okay, thirty games. This this I sounds well, like service time manipulation. This Shane's talking about just sounds I'm like not, I'm not going to sign up. I'm not claiming guys. it's manipulation. I'm saying from the player's perspective, what Tampa Bay is doing is essentially moving the whole. You know, to the extent that every if every team adopted the Tampa Bay strategy, we'd essentially have a salary cap. It would be like something where you just cycle through players. The first five years is salary. You know, salary capped, and you just keep cycling. Essentially, it's getting rid of free agency by okay, only focusing okay. on All your players. That is that ex- that suggests that there's an inefficiency in the cap relative to value on the field, and they've just identified this and are exploiting it. That potential exists in every sport. It certainly does, but in other sports, there's not this kind of. You know, I mean, this was a. I mean, the NFL had to correct this too, right? Didn't they have to suddenly like they it used yep. to be quarterbacks were you know like drafted quarterbacks were really underpaid. Okay, so this is like. I mean, isn't this the same thing where they had to essentially change the rules so that you know top draft picks actually got fairly compensated? You know, coming out of you know, no, coming out of the gra- draft. No, right? no, 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 no. They, they went the other way. Oh. They, they, the guys were getting paid too, too much, much at the very top they had to bring it down. But what is like this is basically like bad government regulation that introduces distortions in the market. There's just only some teams are sharp enough or disciplined enough to take advantage of. It. Yeah, but I mean, th- this is the government re- regulation that has to essentially, uh, you know, I think so this is going to be one of uh, potentially that, refine the that regulation. Refinement, but yeah, so, uh, it, but I, by the way, if I'm the diamond, if I'm the Rays, I'm upset about that. I want that distortion to exist as long as possible. Right. If I'm one of the of only clubs who's smart enough to take advantage yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, the Rays also think, don't have money to keep their their and or higher free right. agents but it at turn, very high it turns, prices. It turns out you don't yeah. need it apparently because yeah, these guys I, are so competitive every year. No, that's but right. Audie's point's important because if you think about it, baseball is not there just to serve the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Mets who have tons of money. Thirty teams need to field a good product. Half of the teams, at least, yeah. depend <laughs> on this five-year period to which they can keep their contracts and total salary under, let's say, seventy, eighty million. They can't pay 120 million, 150. They go bankrupt. So this actually enables well, MLB to have a good product for 30 teams. I think from oh, a, look, from well, a business okay tra- counter argument. Yeah. All right, this allows franchises to keep their salaries or their payroll as low as they kind of want to. And for teams like the Rays or the Athletics that manage to still 
produce competitive teams. I mean, good. that's great, but there's a lot of teams that just kind of coast on revenue sharing and don't produce competitive products. Well, just to be clear, it's not exactly true in the following sense. There is a minimum payroll. As a matter of fact, I forget which team it was a couple of years ago. They were actually going to have to pay their players an additional $20 million <laughs> to do nothing more because they had not met the minimum yeah. payroll. Yeah, so I think sure, one of the things you, yes. will, you could see arbitrated raise this year is raise the minimum. And I think that, okay. would, that, that, I, that I, I've always... <laughs> supported a raise of that as I, I think that's a way bigger problem i think that minimum payroll is way too low as opposed to you know a lot of people call for like an actual cap on the big spenders i think it's the small spenders that are actually hurting the competitive pro- the product much Interesting. more well a related issue is tanking and i, I yeah. gather there's some concern about tanking can we do anything about tanking how what would that look like what do the people who want to do something about tanking in baseball what do they suggest i mean tanking's tougher in baseball just to kind of, because a, you're, you you know the kind of products like you know the better draft picks and stuff like that they that you would that get are are so far out kind of from like it's not like the NFL where you can tank you know you you you've got a specific player a that will change right. change your prospects next year if you tank them for that. Well, so it seems to be it it's, it must be related to their offloading talent and so it's their offloading you, talent. You would have yeah. to. Limit but, that in some but How truthfully, would you do that? I don't, there really isn't a concept of tanking in baseball. There are teams that just don't spend and don't well, do they're, a good they're, job. They're, they're, no, that, exactly. that's not true. I don't I mean, think so. The I mean, Astros, the Marlins, the, what the Marlins did twice, they went made the World Series and then immediately sold off their entire that's team. Not, that's not like they weren't trying to get jockey. They just couldn't afford their players and they decided they were well, going to Ast- read it and Astros do it again. Did. The Astros couldn't afford. The, sure. The Astros rebuild was totally a multi season tank in order to. But when you Generate. use the word tank, it's it's like not playing to win this year. Is that what you mean by tank? Or not? Or or, or, or making decisions that you know are not going to lead it's, to it's more, more winning. Than, it's more than that because yeah. it's avoiding that bad middle. And you talk about I talk about this with people in every sport. I talk about this with executives in every sport. It's just not good to be in the middle. Right. Mm-hmm. You either want to be competitive or rebuilding. And yep. so that's what I'm talking about. So like, that's what's happening. There are absolutely plenty of that in baseball: competitive and rebuilding. Yeah, and, but and, and and the thing is, if it's cycled around teams, that would be okay. But there are teams basically that are generationally rebuilding that have been rebuilding for the entire time the show has been on the air. But that's because they're terrible at it. I mean, the the Rays are excellent at, at, at almost never rebuilding because they're so good at it. The, the Nationals um, it's were, not, are a rebuilding and, team. And, and they, they went five years ago and they said is, we're there gonna... certainly is incompetence involved. But there's also, I think, like, I think there are certain owners are just like, why well, I, I make money no right. matter what. And so, you know, what, what, where, where's my kind of incentive to spend on ba- players okay, in that, order to win? That's a big, that could happen in professional. For a long time, people said that about the Bengals, for example. They're not mm-hmm. trying to win. There's mm-hmm. enough money up there. They don't need to try to win. They don't need to spend money to make money. So, but that feels a little different than these other issues, which I'm hearing talked about. In, yeah, in the but but CBA. true, and I, I think the NFL is a poor analogy for this, only because mm-hmm. there's essentially almost no variation between teams in terms of player spending, right? I mean, like, I mean, there's, there's a more cap. than you might think. The minimum, the minimum is there's not is, a magnitude. Like in baseball, no, right? yeah. of course not. Of course, no. Not. no okay. Not the, the, okay. The magnitude of baseball is six, by the way, from the highest to the oh, lowest. Oh, that's con- insane. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I was just going to comment that it's interesting. I was just reading the proposal for the from the owners. Let's be clear: from the owners, is to raise the minimum to a hundred million dollars a team. Now, from I don't even know what it is now. Forty, 50, or, 40 50. or fifty. Yeah. They want to raise, and they say, "Why would they do that?" They also want to cut the luxury tax threshold way down. 
so to penalize the Yankees and the Red Sox of the world and make the tax rate a lot higher. So actually, the proposal from the owners would be to would be a massive yeah. compression yeah. of yeah. the salaries. Now, let's see if the players take this in some sense. In, I mean, it's, Why would well, the owners want to do they, that? They want to stop the $400 million contracts because a $400 million contract under the new tax is a $600 million contract because mm-hmm. the threshold comes down, the tax rate it's goes up. It's essentially going the NBA route of kind of capping Correct. the superstars. You tax the superstars. You, ta- you, you tax them. By almost having like a, you know, it's, it's essentially a de facto maximum contract, Correct. like individual contract. Mm-hmm. Clever. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I not sure. I think so, the players, the players are, don't want that. No, exactly. No, I mean, the top players it. are not going to want that, certainly. Right. The rank and file, who knows? I mean, like, I don't know how... So, rank and file just generally look, don't care. Real quickly, let's look at this. So, so uh, per Cots contract, 17, seven teams started the year with a 40-man roster payroll below $100 million, which is the metric used for luxury tax purposes. What are those teams? Just what do you make of these teams, guys? It's an interesting collection. Pirates, Indians, or whatever they're going to be called. Guardians. Now, Guardians. Oreos, Brewers, Rays, Mariners, and Tigers. So I don't even know anything about baseball. I know Cleveland's one of the annually most competitive clubs. Rays, one of the most annually competitive. Brewers have had a good season. The O's are rebuilding. But that's an interesting list. Mm-hmm. They're good. They're some fine. Some good, some bad. They're fine. There's actually that's fine. the lowest teams. The, Mar- the, the, the Marlins are above $100 million. These are the, per Cots contracts, these okay. are the seven with okay. b- this year below $100 million. Interesting. Hmm. All right. Uh, Shane, can you give us a little bit of a hockey update? We've got 20 yeah, games no, in the season. Yeah, no, it's exciting. Right? Exactly. I, I, I promised you guys an update. Now that we're officially into enough of the, at least my, according to my prior claims, we've seen enough of the season to actually start getting serious or yep. believe what we're seeing. And I'm happy what, to report. Exactly. What do you think our most interest, most important question is? How are the Kraken doing? Yes! You got you read my mind exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, the Kraken are unfortunately not doing, I mean, they're not... It depends what your expectations are. They're not yeah. the worst team in the league, so they're doing well, I think, for you know pre Golden Knights. Yeah, the Golden Knights expansion yeah. expectations. They're, obviously, that's Seattle, right? Seattle, yeah, they're yeah. Eight, thirteen, and one. Yep. So, so that's, that, that's bad. Well, I mean, uh, that puts them in probably the bottom, one, one, eight, the bottom like the six 20, or seven teams in the league. Right, so the hey, bottom 23 percent. Tampa, huh? Tampa yeah. Bay Buccaneers lost yeah. their first 26 games. All right, yeah, well. I, I, mean, I mean, the Golden Knights, I think, have just really changed their perception of what expect. You know, expansion teams are supposed to kind of be at the bottom. Uh, but anyway, um, they, I, I, on paper, they should be better than that, I think. They had a really good expansion draft, so I, I would expect them to kind of rise. Okay. Good. I, I want to focus on one positive, at least from my perspective, yeah. is that after 20 games in... The Battle of Alberta is still on <laughs> the Calgary Flames and Edmonton Oilers are the number one and two teams in the West. I this has that. not happened in a long, long time. It's very exciting, at least for those very well, small heck, market te- uh, we, places. We've been through seasons where no Canadian teams made the playoffs. Yes. So to have two teams out there in the Pacific Division competing like that. And, of course, Edmonton is fun to watch because of, what's the guy's name again? McDavid? Connor McDavid? There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, go. yeah, no, another another generational talent like to, in Edmonton. That's I always really like to ask Shane my classic uh, <laughs> so regression to the mean shrinkage question. So if yeah. the season ended right now, we'd have two teams that are on pace to score 120 points. Now, yeah. we know that's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So let's take Washington, the Capitals. They're exactly averaging 1.5 points per game at 80-game season. I think hockey's 80, not 82, 80. That would be 120 points. What's your prediction of the number of points Washington ends up with? So right now they're at, would they be scheduled out for 120? They're at 1.5 per game times yeah, 80 yeah, yeah, is yeah. exactly 120. Yeah, I, I, I drop them down to like 100, 105 maybe. 
Okay, so that much. Yeah. I always like to yeah. do this because there's always what? How far are we? Twenty. I like a quarter. quarter. A little quarter. over a quarter. Quarter of the season. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So, no, no. I'm just commenting. It's amazing in hockey. Yeah. There's always within a quarter of the season, not always, usually one or two teams that you know, if they just keep that pace up, they're yeah. gonna break the Montreal Canadiens record. They're gonna get hundred and twenty something points, and then no one ends up more than yeah. hundred and ten, rarely. That's right. it, it, it's very tough. Tampa obviously was was, was a one team that kinda kept going with it, but yeah. Well, I, I, since you brought up Washington, I also want to just kinda point out uh that Alex Ovechkin's one uh, goal one power play goal away from uh, tying the record for power play goals. Jeez, which is what by the way? It's like two hundred and sixty something. Is like it that. Gretzky or is it? No, else? it's not. Gretzky's like I looked at Gretzky's like seventeenth or eighteenth. I mean, Gretzky is top for overall goals by yeah. by, by a long margin. But power plays, he power play goals, he's like you know down. Tenth or eleventh, I think, all the time. Uh, that's interesting. So, what that is guy it about didn't the need power plays? To that's score? right. That's right. What about the Caps? Make them so reliably good. Do they have an Alex owner's... Ovechkin? <laughs> Does it really come down to I mean, player? Like I that? mean, he, um, I don't it... mean this year, Shane. I mean over the last ten years. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I think they're uh, they're they are one of the kind of premier, well-won franchises, both just in terms of drafting and player development. Oh, yeah. We need to more. We need to learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's another question for you. The Montreal Canadiens made the finals last year. Oh, they're terrible. This they're year, six right. and sixteen so yeah. far. This Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, what's going on? Was it just crazy fluky last year? I think a, a little, little bit. bit of, yes. They were the yeah. last team in. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, again, they were the last. They were the uh, again. They had those separate, like, sort yeah. of like kind of you know pods. Kind of pods or whatever last year. Uh, I think it was mostly just a crazy playoff run, uh, uh, fueled by their goal t- hot goaltender, and their goaltending has been much less hot. This I find year. it fascinating from a statistical perspective why you say it because a lot of people would say, "What's happened to them this year?" And you brought the opposite. Maybe what happened to them last year? <laughs> <That's right. That's laughs> they weren't right. as good. I mean, we forget well, that that was kind of seen as a fluke. Even no, when it was we don't. Happening. We for don't sure. forget because they locked they knocked the Leafs out, and we pull yeah. for the Leafs, and the Leafs are top in that division right now. So maybe we're a little bit back to. We're always going to pull for those guys, um, at least until they win, and then we'll start hitting them again. <laughs> All right, guys, that has been a full half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. Here on SiriusXM, we do it every week, doing this week from the studio. Had the whole team in here for the first half. Just lost Audie Weiner to some Audie Weiner business. But we still have Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. We also have Matty Datz and Dion Simpkins in the control booth. Dion calling us in little with the, with, the, with, the, with the material on the front end. It's fun to be called in with that stuff. Good to have you, Dion. We've just come through a little baseball hockey segment. We've got some football to talk about. Certainly, this is a rich, rich moment in the college football season, made even richer this year because of the coaching carousel. We've seen some crazy coaching carousels. I'm not sure we've seen one as high profile as the one that's spinning right now. Over the weekend, Lincoln Riley accepted the job at USC, moving from one of the Blue Blood programs to one of the even bluer Blue Blood programs, and we were searching for parallels. Bill, our, our friend Bill Conley talked about this on, on Twitter. He's like, I'm looking for a parallel for a coach at a Blue Blood program moving to another Blue Blood program. There's what about just, Nick Saban? From from where to where? He went from LSU to the pros. Oh, yeah, 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 sorry. Is. I left out the pros in between. He probably blocked out that Miami period. I'm sure he would rather everybody did. So, okay. the, you know, he, Bill came up with 
Bear Bryant, who moved from A and M to Alabama back in the day. Okay, um, mm-hmm. that's you know back in the day, we none of us were remember were around for that one. Um, I guess I don't get about, to count Urban Meyer. From, no, because he went into the broadcasting booth. Or no, I know that. He had a delay no, in no, between, no. Straight, but he did go from Florida no, no. to Ohio Season to season. State. It has to be season yeah, to season. I, I, because it's also the timing of this. And maybe, maybe like, are these kind of coaching moves, too? Like, I kind of feel like in the NFL, it's, it would be certainly weird to move from one team to the other in the middle of a season. I mean, or, or I mean, I know it's not no, really the middle not, of the it's season. Not middle. But... It's, it's not middle. In fact, I, I wonder whether he, he probably wouldn't have announced if, if they, OU had beaten Oklahoma if State. To the but Oklahoma final. still has games left. I guess it's not of consequence. No, they don't have regular season or the, or the, or the conference. So it's over. So it's so they now a bowl we, game. We, they, this and, happens and, all and the time. I, it does happen all the time. Yeah, that the bowl, yeah. It's a new coach for bowl game or and something like that. This is the one that this, surprised me was Brian Kelly's announcement. Because well, this Notre is, Dame could still make the college football playoffs. Well, this is the point. This is the entertaining thing that, that Connolly said. He's like, well, you know, the next day, after searching for a parallel for Lincoln Riley moving from Oklahoma, Oklahoma to USC. Here comes Brian, Brian Kelly, Kelly moving from Notre Dame to LSU. So we haven't seen this kind of thing in a, a generation or two, and now we get two in two days. It's just unbelievable. And right, so back to Shane's issue about seasons. Notre Dame, if something goes a little sideways this weekend, and most final weekends they do go a little sideways. If something goes a little sideways, Notre Dame will be in the mix. Do I get to go through my list and see if you agree? This is college football. Let's let's get there. Let's get there. But the other thing that's going on with Kelly moving to LSU is that the leading candidate is the Cincinnati Bengals head coach. Not Bengals. (laughs) The Cincinnati Bearcats head coach. To move to 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 Notre Dame. To move to Notre Dame. Now, I mean, nothing's a shoe-in, but people think he's the strongest candidate, and he's really in a bad spot now, right? Right. Because his team is probably going to make the playoffs if things go according to chalk. So there are some mid-season, not mid-season, end-of-season, still have relevant games implications. Yeah. I don't think Lincoln Riley was really one of them. Yeah, no, and I mean, I would I would assume that, like, I mean, I mean, I guess he's in a tough spot, though. I don't know why there would be anything preventing him from having kind of a secret agreement, essentially. Or are there legal things for, like... Who are you at, talking about? For for the, the fellow, for the Cincinnati coach, for example. Yeah, no, they, could, what, could basically tell Notre Dame, yes, well, let's yes, put it, but... Exactly. You know, Shane, you know, look, let, let that, me focus on this for now. Do you think maybe Riley had a secret secret agreement with USC if he announces less than twenty four hours after they don't qualify for the Big Twelve championship yes. game? I mean, that yeah, was one hundred percent secure. Of, of course, it just if if that secret agreement exists, and I agree, it probably did. Like, why not? I mean, like, why not have them play out the bowl game too that they inevitably will get right? Re- rec- recruiting, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really but, yeah, just about want, a head to like that, oh, like months. But if you think about, be, if you think about the 100%. intelligence. Okay. Am I correct that OU is moving to the SEC? Yeah, suppose, yes. Let's it's, say they do. We don't know the schedule. No, they mm-hmm. will, but the, we okay. don't know when. Let's, would you rather be Lincoln Riley playing in the SEC where maybe you're the fifth best team or now he goes to USC, you're in the Pac-12 or whatever it is. I mean, come on. This guy's not stupid. I'd rather be at USC than OU in the big in the SEC. Yeah, I, that's I just, sounding problematic. I, I mean, except you know, we we you know the the counter argument I guess would be the, basically the same thing is that you know sure he'll be the big fish in the small pond that is the Pac-12, but I mean they'll be kind of arguing for legitimacy like every year, even if they're. Yeah. I mean, if he spends his if he spends every season, be, if he's content with just winning the Pac-10 or Pac-12 every year, well, sure. But I mean, Shane, he's going to be having to kind of argue, I guess, about their legitimacy relative to these SEC teams. But the the theory is that the size of the pond 
the the Pac-12 can claim depends on the size of the fish that the USC is. Exactly. And so if if he can go out there and rebuild USC back to you know the because enough pe- other like like Oregon the Oregon's and you know the world are going to really, stay competitive enough, enough for it's him just, to kind of. Pac-12 goes as USC goes, yeah. and and moreover, they've got the potential. I mean, a lot of it is about recruiting geography, mm-hmm. and you own Southern California if you can yep. put any program together whatsoever. Yeah. I agree with the Eric's take. I think it is a complete no-brainer, frankly, no-brainer. for him to move. As well as he did at OU, it was only going to get to be tougher sledding. USC is out there completely underutilized, completely okay. under-leveraged. And, and they didn't want to wait and see how the rest of the Seahawks season went. He's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> not going back to U.S. That's an interesting question. What's the over-under? What's the probability that Pete Carroll's not there next year? Because we, he chooses not to be there or because they I get rid of him? Any any reason, any reason. I mean, he is in his – he's actually one of the oldest coaches, yeah, he's I seven think, years. He and NFL. Belichick, I think, are the same age. Yeah. I think they're both 70. I think here's the thing. If he thinks that Russell Wilson is done – which, by the way, it's not impossible to believe that Russell Wilson is not the Russell Wilson of five years ago. He's had a lot of injuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's also, I'd say it, you know, people say, well, Tom Brady. Tom Brady's 6'5", 250. Russell Wilson has already been this different yeah. style quarterback, which may not age as well as the pocket oh, well, presence well, of Tom Brady. Well, nobody's. I, I mean, I, I I would be shocked if anybody ages as well as Tom Brady. Yeah, I'm just but, commenting. No, he but, could be gone. But I mean, I, I agree. Or even if he's not, well, you know, even if he he's still going to be a good talent for the next few years, Russell Wilson may not want to sit there through a rebuild in Seahawks. So he may right. demand out. In which case, maybe the, the football the football universe should demand that he move if Pete Carroll's going to remain in charge of that franchise, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But speaking yeah. of Tom Brady, we're not done with college football yet. Did yeah. you see what Michigan did to Ohio State? Oh, oh yeah, I watched oh, what Michigan great. did to Ohio State. It was exciting. No, it was, it was satisfying. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't really have a, a horse in that race other than not wanting a race to be too lopsided. <laughs> there you, you know, go. historically, and right? Some new so, blood, some new, yeah, some new no, horses I mean, in the future right. races. We don't want right. to see the same the same horses grow on the track every and time. Did, uh, and uh, I guess you guys tell me: Does this is Michigan no. automatically no. kind Let's of Let me play into... my doomsday scenario now. Let me play through okay. my scenarios. Okay. Here we go. So I think win or lose in the SEC championship game, Georgia's in. Correct. So Georgia's Correct. in. Okay. Yeah. If Michigan wins, they're in. Correct. If they lose, there will be no Big Ten team in. in yeah, because they'll, they'll all have two losses. They right? will, and Iowa will have be the Big Ten champ. Wisconsin lost last week, so mm. Iowa's playing Michigan, yeah. not Wisconsin. There will be no Big Ten team in if Michigan loses. No, I think Michigan will beat Iowa, and they beat them badly during the regular season, but they still have to win the game. Mm-hmm. Cincinnati will be in if they beat Houston, but only if, in my view, Alabama doesn't beat Georgia. If Alabama beats Georgia, Georgia's in, Alabama's in, I think, the, if assuming Michigan wins, they're mm. in. Now here's the question. Do you take a, well, do you take a zero-loss Cincinnati? Suppose Oklahoma State wins. That's the doomsday scenario for Cincinnati. I see. Yeah. OK State goes in ahead of Cincinnati. So it's Georgia, they're one, they're Alabama. Yep. OK State has one loss. It becomes Georgia, Alabama, Michigan, and OK State. Cincinnati is left out. Now, Notre Dame can make it, in my view. Shane can tell me if, uh, Kate can tell me if I'm wrong. They can make it, but two of the following three teams have to lose. Alabama, OK State, and Cincinnati. If two of those three teams lose, then Notre Dame is in. 
So I I agree with all of your analysis, but for one part. And obviously none of it's doomsday. You're just kind of playing through the logical stuff. Mm -hmm. And I I think that you've got it. You've got it right. But for it's not it's not a given that Oklahoma State would jump Cincinnati with a with a Big 12 title over Baylor. And that's what you're that's what you're needing. So you're saying Michigan wins and they're in Alabama beats Georgia. They're both for sure. And it comes down to a decision between Cincy and Oklahoma State if both those teams win. That's correct. So I agree with all that. I think it's a really interesting choice they'll have at that time. But like consider the strength of record, which is if you if you want to boil, if you want to boil down the resume into one number and you had to use the best number. I think you can make an argument for the strength of record, which is basically the probability that a top 25 team would have achieved this team's record against the schedule they played. Okay. And so it does a real nice job. It's not, it's all about the record, but it's a nice consideration of the, of the strength of schedule. Okay. And so if you run through the, the current strength of records, you get an ordering that goes Georgia, Michigan, Alabama, Cincinnati, Oklahoma State. So they're four and five. By the way, Notre Dame is six, four, five, six. So well, there it, we mm-hmm. are. It captures it really nicely. What we don't know, someone's done this. I don't have it in front of me. What we don't know is Cincinnati's playing Houston in the American title game. Oklahoma oh, State plays did. Baylor. And so you, you, if they you, both win, right. Oklahoma State's going to get a better bonus. I think there's going to be an eye contest. I think the eye contest in those two games really okay, matters. Okay, I was about to ask, like, really what, like matters. a score differential in these games is going to be something look, I, that I assume would, in Cade's yeah. numbers, yes. But I assume in Cade's numbers, look. I don't want to keep saying this, but I keep... Look. Alabama's no good. They should have <laughs> lost to Auburn. Oh, my God. Can you believe that game? They, oh yeah. that, was a one, that was another wonderful football game. But let yeah. me just say again. Alabama is not... I'm not saying they can't beat Georgia. Alabama can beat anybody on any given day. They're, they What they've done on the field the last five or six games, they are not... An elite team. Yeah. No. Well, yeah. They're, they're not as do- they're not dominant relative to their usual standards over the last few Look, years. Look, I would I could make a compelling argument they that the- I could take a one loss Oklahoma State team if they thrash Baylor, then over Alabama right now. Alabama's mm-hmm. only great win if they win will be over Georgia. Well, let's look at that. And let's... it'll depend how great that win look, is, too, look, right? Also, yeah, look. Maybe not beat, in the they voters. Beat Do you think of Alabama? At the time. But those teams, now we found out yeah. they stink. They haven't beaten anybody yeah. good. Who have so they beaten? I, I guess the question is sort of like how much Alabama's, like, like in a scenario where Alabama beats Georgia, but it's not really an actual kind of, imp- like maybe Georgia no, just has a terrible going. game. They're still going, going no matter what. Yeah, still going. They, they could win it on a any uh, t- 10 overtime game of two point conversions for the last eight rounds if they think <laughs> Georgia they can, they're they can going. win it like the Baltimore Ravens wins games and they're still going yeah i tend to, i tend to agree with all that let's run through the the playoff not the playoff well the, here's here's look, look here's who's alabama's beaten they beat the number 14 team at the time miami mm-hmm. we now know they're no good they beat mercer they beat florida 31 to 29 we now know florida's no good they beat southern miss they beat Ole Miss. That turns out to be a good win. They lost to Texas A&M. They beat Mississippi State, Tennessee. They barely got by but, LSU. They barely got by Arkansas. To, isn't this exactly yeah. what Kay's no, no, calculation builds in? I mean, no, no, no. But, Eric, so I, the, what strength of record doesn't get is, is the, the margin of victory. Right, right. And so they're just barely getting it done against some teams that they – And they should have lost to mm-hmm. Auburn. Yeah, so yeah. You, it, here's an interesting idea. What if you ran strength of record relative to the line? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, 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 no, no, but we can't get on that kind of analytics train. 
whenever we want the things that happen on the field to matter. So right. when you, if that's the criteria, and I think it's a good one, strength of record is a nice blend of that. And it's going to say Alabama's third. It's third in the country because they play a tough schedule. Give them some credit mm-hmm. for actually getting the wins. It's not unlike the Ravens in the NFL this year. They're just winning they, ugly. They're just winning but ugly. But how much do you trust? I'm not trying to transition that to the I don't, NFL. I don't, I don't trust the Ravens when it comes to beating elite teams. No, that's and right. And I don't trust Alabama. Look. Alabama, I don't think, can put three games together against elite teams to win the national title. Maybe they – let's suppose they beat Georgia. You can't convince me. I've no, watched I mean, every one of their games the last I, five I, weeks. I, I, they're I, not beating – if totally, they play Michigan, they're not beating Michigan. And you know what? If they get lucky to beat Georgia, they're not beating them a second and time. And I, I, I enjoy I, – I completely concede your point in the sense that, like, I want – you know, I want Cincinnati in there instead of Alabama just because I think it'll be a more – I mean, and not just because I'm tired of seeing Alabama in there all the time anyway. It's that I think, you know, that, that would be a more – I think Cincinnati's – more I mean, likely to make a run. How much fun would that final four be? Georgia, Cincinnati, Michigan, and Oklahoma State. I mean, oh, no yeah. one had that foursome. I mean, you could have bet all, all hundreds those, of all combinations. All those teams would, are so, would be just so ecstatic to be in there to, for start. I mean, Michigan, Michigan would be the two, right? Michigan would be two, probably, yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, how tragically sad will we be on Saturday if Alabama figures out a way to beat Georgia? It's only I'll be six, very sad. It's only a six-and-a-half-point line. It's yeah. not out of That's the realm of possibility. to me. Yeah, if you look at if you look at our no priors model. Yeah, let's, we, what's the no priors result? Like ten points. I mean, we think Georgia is ten points better than anybody else in the country. And Alabama's no two. Priors. No, I don't think they are. Actually, okay. I don't think in the no priors they're number two. Well, we um, can all cheer for them closing the deal. But let, let's just name the other game. So Baylor, Oklahoma State. That's only a five point line. I mean, Baylor could get this thing done. It's not Notre Dame should be watching closely. Baylor has on how many Saturday. losses? I think just the one. No, they must have more than that. They must have two losses. Okay. All right. I was just wondering, is there any reason why Baylor no, can't ba- make Baylor it? No, Baylor won't get it because they have a second loss. Okay. They, they've lost okay. to somebody that should. Like Iowa State beat them and maybe, maybe, gosh, did no, I don't know. They lost to somebody else. Probably Oklahoma State. Um, yeah, they must have lost Oklahoma State and uh And, and what about uh, uh, Cincinnati-Houston? What's the uh, what's the spread on that one? The spread on that one is in the... Because that s- may, may, makes our dream scenario go <laughs> real yeah. quick if they lose. Ten and a half points. Yeah. And so they're okay. supposed to win that game. Just And that's the same spread as Michigan over Iowa, by the way. So those mm-hmm. two would be the more likely if you want to yeah. start filling out your bracket now. Um, but look, 10-2 things happen on this last season, this last week of the season. And there are five games. There are, there are four games that matter. I mean, are really all four of them going to go chalk, guys? What's the probability? I wish we had probabilities in each of these games. What's the probability that all those go to chalk? It's got to be no higher than 50-50. Oh, yeah, that, I, I think that's right. Well, no, gonna, no, no matter gonna, how lopsided those are. I was actually right? going to estimate 0.8 to the fourth. So that's about 42 to 43%. Okay. If each one of them is 80-20, and well, maybe more than 80-20, yeah, but I don't. But let's a even cup. take 0.8 to the fourth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 0.64 squared. That's right. about 43%. Yeah. That's about it. What that's all the, I'm giving it. People forget about that, I think, just what? how, va- and that's how quickly eight. those yeah, probabilities what? vanish when you mo- start multiplying them. What to the fourth gives us 0.5? 0.8 to the fourth, right? No, 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 no. no, 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 no. Point, uh, <laughs> It's Point. higher. It's got to be well. It's got to end up being 0. 0.75 roughly squared. So it's about 0. 
It's about point eighty five. Okay, yeah. so eighty five. So that's how far this is off because you would need the average probability to be point eighty five for a fifty fifty chance that all the favorites win. Yeah, and it's not. That's not what these. You're not going to get that from a couple of ten and a halves, which are pretty high. But the other two, the other two lines are yeah, five and no six way, and a half. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we're saying that there is a. It's a little lower. Yeah, it's like eighty-four point something percent. But yeah, you, no way those games are eighty if, something yeah, if you, percent. If, if you give me you, six to one right now on Alabama, on, on Alabama, I'll take six to one. It's it's that's too high for it's us. Too high. Too so high we should us. go around and pick our upset if we know there's going to be one, or we think it's likely there's going to be one. Well, the odds are it's either Baylor or. Alabama, and I can't live with myself if I were to pick Alabama. I can't either. They I, don't the, look good. The, the team I actually hate, the school I hate most in the country is Baylor. So I don't want to play this game. I don't want okay, to play all right, this all game. right, all right. <laughs> but all right. we are saying, we are saying, so fellas, we are cheering for chalk this weekend. It's weird to say, but I'm yeah. kind of cheering for chalk this weekend because I want yeah. that. I don't want Alabama in. I do want right. Cincinnati in. I wouldn't yeah. mind the following. I wouldn't mind if Alabama lost. And OK State lost, and Notre Dame got yeah, in. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the one that's version. The, I wouldn't mind that one, it where Cincinnati and Notre Dame got in. But really, in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the universe, would you rather give a fourth spot to Notre Dame again? No, or, or Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. State. I, mean, I want to see Oklahoma rather, State. How much fun? Georgia, Oklahoma State, Cincinnati, and Michigan. That's a fun, unique, mm-hmm. fresh, mm-hmm. That would be fresh fun. four. All right, fellas, uh, let's jump over to the NFL side of things. We talked a little bit about that game Sunday night, the Cleveland game in Baltimore that somehow Baltimore managed to win. Did you see the number that that in the 52 previous times that a team had thrown four interceptions in the NFL, they lost 52 times? Yeah. And the Ravens finally figured out a way. I mean, the Browns do not look good. Mayfield no. does not look good. No. No, no I think uh, they're going to have some decision-making to do with Baker Mayfield. I mean, he's also, I mean, with he injuries. He must be banged up. Yes, no, and I mean, like, I think if well, they he's call... got a shoulder that needs surgery. That's a fact. His is not throwing shoulder. At what point do they need to just call it for the season and say, we're going to not... Well, I mean, the thing anymore. is, the playoff, you know, the, the wild card's still pretty wide open there. I mean, right. they, I, a couple more ga- if they lose a couple more, maybe they fall out of kind of, you know, realistic contention, yeah. and then they call it. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think he's going to keep trying to play as long as they're in But it's contention. also, it's not unrelated to what we've been talking about. So, Worth noting, Baker, they have a good no, beat backup, by the way. No, no, I know. Relatively. But I, yeah, but my comment is, is Baker Mayfield an elite quarterback? I don't think yeah. so. So now the question is, do you want to like? Do you sign him to another contract, knowing he's not a top five NFL quarterback? He's not a bottom five either. He's somewhere between. I'm making this up. For in my view, eight to twelve, ten to fifteen, somewhere yeah. in that range. There's certainly eight to ten quarterbacks I'd rather have than yeah. Baker Mayfield. So now the question is: wow. Is that what you invest in going forward, knowing that he's not going to win you this? He can win the Super Bowl, but he's not going to win you the Super Bowl. Yeah. So that's what my concern is of Cleveland. Do they stick? Like, are they ever better than a ten and six yeah. team with Baker know. Mayfield? I mean, ask 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 a Vikings fan whether they like the Kirk Cousins contract, like signing. Because I mean, I think he, he, we're kind of talking about a Kirk Cousins sort of level quarterback. If you're kind of putting him in that range, right? I, I, Who Cousins? Yeah. He's having an elite season. Well, this season, yes, but I mean, like, kind of over the over his time with the Vikings, and even I, over his time with the Redskins. Well, you I know? think it's really a question of capital allocation because I think yeah. Mayfield is clearly good enough to win if he's healthy to win a Super Bowl I, with I, a good I roster. I agree with Eric, that. Eric put it well. He's good enough to win. He's not well good enough to win it for you, but he's good enough yeah, to, to lead a team. But the question is, are you going to... That's great on a rookie contract. It's fantastic on a rookie contract. It may not be great on a Is full, he still on his rookie deal? Yeah. 
I mean, he's on his he's in his fifth year, isn't he? Right now, this is the year that he would sign. They didn't okay. sign him early. I no, they know. extended him to the fifth year, but that's it. Jeez. So that's the that's yeah. So they've got a really, really, really big question. Yeah. You know, I I, I was having a conversation with um, a, someone in the league about the Browns, and this person suggested a lot of smart people, but they might not be great at making hard decisions. And it's and it struck me as a super interesting dimension mm-hmm. to think about for running these franchises. And we because we talk about you know we talk about analytics, we talk about culture, but we don't talk about do you have the discipline to make the tough decisions. And, and, and the one person that people do talk about that is Belichick mm-hmm. and how kind of cold-hearted he's been over the years. Get rid of everybody. I think you kind of have to, you don't have to be that way, but it's an advantage if you can be that way. Well, I, I, I th- I, yes, and I think it specifically has allowed the Patriots to kind of continually renew and turn turn over basically and and not have these kind of, like they they have i mean last year was the closest they've come to kind of a rebuilding year in like the last 20 years or so and it was also co- it was you know kind of a weird year for for everything i think it allows them to kind of i think that kind of not getting sort of like nostalgic or whatever you want to call it about contracts does allow you to kind of renew essentially in a way that recognizes that most players' kind of peak performance is relatively short. If Baker short. Mayfield would accept a, I'm making the number up, a five-year, $90 million contract, I would sign him. Mm-hmm. But if he's expecting 25 to $30 million a year, I'm just not giving it him that. I'm, it's just too much. It's too much resources what, what anybody, for him. Does anybody ever sign? Does anybody who thinks of themselves and is talked about as kind of the top tier, you don't actually have these three-quarter tier Correct. signings. Yeah, I'm asking I mean, for a three-quarter tier signing. But but this is what's weird about the. It's weird to think about it this way, actually, because quarterbacks all the time, there's like one number. They all get signed at right. that one number. They're not equal. They shouldn't all be. You right. know, it's yeah. funny. The same thing's happening right now with college football coaches. They're all signing. Like nine and a half, ten million a year. Ten-year, $95 million contracts. Right, that's like, the number. That's a weird, like, everybody's going to get paid the same way. But that's the nature of these things. You get these benchmarks, and they come in at the same number. And you're saying, that's not good. You're, if you're running the Browns, you're not going to pay that for Mayfield. I would pay him. I like your expression. I'm signing him to a three-quarter deal. If he likes it, great. If he doesn't, I can't, I'm can't. i moving on. I just can't. And I think he probably will. I mean, on the open market, I think at least one team will probably pay him excess of Maybe. that, right? Maybe so. I think probably. Just because the desperate. I mean, you know, Darnold had his fifth-year option picked up. I mean, it looks like a terrible mistake now. But, like, you know, I mean, I, I think that enough teams are desperate for kind of quick quarterbacking solutions. Right? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, that I, I I think you know if he kind of hits as a free agent, which is why we rarely see quarterbacks, even even good like kind of average quarterbacks. Look, if we're moving hit. to the NFL, we got to spend enough time just to leave ourselves enough time. Look, the game of the season, in my view, is this. I think it's Monday night. Oh, the Patriots Bills. I'm so happy. You're <laughs> I mean, I'm so happy we're talking about the Patriots. No, I mean, as, if the you know, Patriots like, win, if the Patriots win this game, mm-hmm. look. As it is, they were one Ravens loss away from being the number one seed in the East. They're yeah. still the two seed right now. But if they beat the Bills in Buffalo, come on. It's real. Yeah. This is a team that can go the distance. They oh, can. I, I, yeah. They yeah. absolutely can. Where does Massey Peabody have the Patriots right now? So let me jump over to that. Now, without Priors or with? Which this one is, is This is with Priors. With this Priors. Is our, our full Massey Peabody. This yes. is without the numbers from the Monday night game, but that shouldn't matter. We have them third, third in the league. Yeah, that's about right. Which the Bucks is are ahead just of them. Re- remarkable. Bucks. Well, 
the team that they're that's hosting them Monday night is ahead of can them. Can you imagine? So we have I, Buffalo number I two. I really don't think it's going to happen. But a Brady Belichick Super Bowl. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you guys would probably. I mean, it sounds like a dream to me. You guys probably talk, yeah, sounds I, like a nightmare. I to you. No, I would love yeah. that. Oh, well, yeah, that you would, would be right, tremendous. Yeah, right, right, Tampa. Right. That would be. I, I would look forward to the game. I wouldn't look forward to the weeks of hype. No, it's before true. It's true. Game. We we've already experienced that once this season, and it, it was it was it was enough. It was too much even for What's me. What's shocking here is that the the betting line on that game's only minus three. So does Massey yeah. Peabody have them that close? Yeah, well, so we'd have them about identical record, one right? and a half. And then plus, plus home field. Okay, so that's about right. We have right on, we're right yeah. on the market there. I just want to, we're talking about the Pats there, but it's a good moment for the Bills, too. Yeah. I love that a Bills-Pats game is like the is like yeah. the high profile game of the yeah. week, must, maybe even the season. No, that one of their top, you know, one of their top kind of rivals now. Like uh, you it's know, for, for most of their dynasty, it was you know their big rivalries yes, were out exactly. of division, and it's nice to kind of have one of those be in division right now. I agree. You and, get a couple more, you know, at least an extra game of it. And they've been, year. I mean, and in a way, they've been bullied by that team for so long to be considered kind of toe to toe with mm-hmm. them. That mm-hmm. alone, and to have this in Buffalo, I mean, Je- yeah. Eric and I share some a dear friend. Jeff Argus is a dear friend who is from Buffalo. I went to lots of Bills games because of Jeff yeah. and some others in Buffalo. I gotta believe he's going to be at the game. I got to text him when the show's oh, yeah, over. You, you, know. you got you to you got to give him a little pep talk for getting up there. I mean, Monday night game in Buffalo. Those are great fans. It's a great it's a great atmosphere. That's a big deal. It really is a big deal. I agree. What else do you like over the weekend? Is, I mean, the Thursday night game is, you know, it's it's the last hope for the Saints. Like, yeah. they've got to beat the Cowboys in mm-hmm. this game. They just have to. And I, I, favorite, I, and I think but... it'll also be interesting because, you know, obviously Simeon was kind of, kind of came out actually playing pretty well in replacement of Jameis, but is I, it sounds like it's going to be Taysom Hill starting that oh, game, okay. so that'll be kind of an interesting That's unpredictability. Interesting. What about what about Denver, Kansas City? Denver's been showing yep. signs of life. Didn't they take? Well, it to, they. Kind of, I mean, it's they're hard to predict. They'll like you know beat the Cowboys and then I lose like but a terrible you know the, one. Do you know what the, the line is in that game? Well, no. got Chiefs minus ten. Yeah. See, they. This is Denver's not a very good team. They just but they just smashed the Chargers, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they just, did. They did. That what, seems like a big line. It's a big line. It is a big line. In the NFL period, that's a big line. What about Baltimore Pittsburgh? What's that line? Could you believe what happened with Pittsburgh and Cincy last weekend? Oh, oh my goodness! Pittsburgh yeah. was terrible. No, and I mean, I I, I I wrote them off completely earlier this season, and then they won a couple. Now I'm ready to write them off so just again. To be clear, but Massey, I know what the betting line is. The Steelers are plus three and a half. The Ravens are only five point better than the Steelers, according to Massey Peabody, and then you add on the home field. Is that about right? We have the Ravens at at fifth. Yeah, we have, no, it's sixth. We have Ravens at sixth at like four point three, and we have Pittsburgh quite a bit further down. I would never give negative a big point three. I'd never give a big. No, point that's about right. Davis, five yeah. points. The line's right. AFC five points North, out of the home field. It's three and a half. There you go. There Obviously, you go. those two teams are on very different trajectories. But with the AFC North, you can never. I mean, those are such unpredictable, hard fought games. Generally, I agree with you. But my gosh, do you still believe that? Really? Do you honestly? No, believe I mean, that? I mean, no. Pittsburgh looks really bad right now. Ben, Ben looks really bad right now. On so. the other hand, Baltimore hasn't won a convincing game, and in, in, they haven't won yeah. many convincing games this season. All right, guys, that is three-quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Great interview coming up with Doug Fearing, Zealous Analytics. Going to learn a little bit about what's going on. In- You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM, rolling into the fourth quarter now. Cade Massey hosting with my co-host, longtime collaborator and good buddy Shane Jensen, 
Shane's in here for the last quarter with me. We've got an interview this segment since pandemic hit. We are doing interviews in the fourth quarter. We are, let's say, back in the studio for the first time since March 2020. It's been fun to be here for the last couple of hours. And we're going to do our first interview from, from the studio in, in a year and plus after six years of doing them in here. We have in this segment, Doug Fearing. Doug is the president and co-founder of Zealous Analytics. If you haven't heard of Zealous, then either you're not on sports Twitter, or you're not paying attention. And one of the reasons we wanted to bring Doug in is because Zealous is such a unique outfit and they're beginning to hoover up all the talent around the world of sports analytics. We got to get Doug on here and let's tell the world about what these guys are doing. Doug, glad to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to uh, excited to, to join the conversation. Absolutely. Doug, we usually ask where people are calling in from. I believe you're calling in from Austin, somewhere in North Austin. Is that right? Yes, Austin, Texas. Uh, that is uh, that is home for us and, and, and where we started Zella. So we, 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 we might ask, how did you choose Austin, Texas? But maybe we should get into a little bit of Zealous first. Let's talk about I want to get some on your background. We'll get we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's let's explain to the world what Zealous Analytics is. And when I say you guys started hoovering up all the time, I'm serious. There was a stretch there this fall where every other day somebody's making an announcement about starting work for Zealous. I mean, just talent after talent. And then I knew some other people who were going and that they weren't being announced. And it looks like you guys just made this big hiring spree. It just raises even more. What's going on in Austin with Zealous Analytics? Maybe start with what's the proposition? What do you guys do? What, what, what are you selling? What products and services are you guys selling? And in what form do you sell them? Sure. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, we're trying to provide a, a research-oriented analytics capability for a limited number of partner teams uh, across sports. We, we want to help our partners uh, compete through analytics and win more games. And we do that by providing uh, kind of tools and capabilities to support their internal analytics groups. So, so we're not a, you know, we're, we're not trying to replace the work that's being done internally. We're, we're just trying to uh, kind of supplement that and complement that with more of a research uh, driven approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what led to offering this and what is different from some of the other vendors that are out there? And why, why are the economics and data worlds such that this is even a viable thing to do or a smart thing for a team to contract with you for? Yeah, it's a good, a good question. I mean, having been on the other side of this, working uh, with the Rays and the Dodgers and, and building out the capabilities there. Let me, let um, me just say, Doug, because I could have said that in the introduction, Doug was the director of R&D for the Dodgers when they really got serious about building out R&D. And he left just before he left without a ring, crazy man. But a lot of the work that he did. By a couple of years. Yes. Yeah, so he helped kind of get those guys going in that direction and, 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 then, and then moved on to other things. So he's coming from the team side at one point. And before that, between some of your teaching gigs, you were, you were with the Rays. So very much the team background. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, I pre- appreciate that. Yeah, no, w- with the Dodgers, you know, having built out that uh, team and capability, you know, obviously interacted with a lot of vendors in the sports analytics space. And one of the challenges there for teams is that most vendors service every team, right? Fundamentally, they're providing the same capabilities to all 30 organizations in baseball. And so it's very hard to attribute any sort of competitive advantage uh, to that. Now, we were fortunate to... 
you know, get a head start in a couple areas where we did feel like we had that advantage and, and uh, recognizing, uh, you know, kind of recognizing that was a big part of uh, how we came to Dallas, that if we limited the number of teams we worked with and took advantage of essentially the division and conference structures that already exist in sports, we could balance um, some cost sharing to make these research type approaches feasible for complex problems in sports uh, while still maintaining a competitive advantage for our partner teams. Okay, so one of the things you're saying is there's a scale that is required to do really high-level analytics in sports these days. Given data that are available, it's hard for a single team you know, who might be running, depending on the sport, they might just have a couple of people to, to really be able to, to, to do what they need to do. And if you can go in and group a few teams together, you have better scale. And if you limit it to just a few teams, maybe that's still worthwhile. If you did it for every team, it wouldn't be worthwhile to them. This is some of the logic, yes? Correct. Yeah, that, that's effectively the trade-off that we're playing with. And then I think what, you know, what is, what's particularly exciting about that is then across sports. Because there is this, or, or there certainly has been this convergence in types and complexity of data sources over time, where the, you know, the research and methodological expertise required to build some of these models uh, extends, you know, we, we've, uh, for example, Luke Bourne, who's uh, my co-founder, and Dan Charboni, who had hired with the Dodgers and is our principal data scientist. They'd worked on some foundational work around expected possession value for basketball. And when we hired Dan with the Dodgers, it was to apply some of those same spatial modeling techniques in a baseball context. And now bringing him back to Zealous, we're able to extend that um, back into basketball, into uh, American football, into soccer. We've hired recently Javier Fernandez, who has obviously done work in that space as well. So it's so, been exciting to kind of see this play out where this model of sharing, um, you know, expertise across sports and across teams has been very effective. So let me, let's just stop for a second because you're naming this rid ridiculously interesting proposition that there's been some convergence on technology and data across sports that allows scale. So at first we were talking about scale within a sport. Let's get enough right. teams that you have enough scale to take advantage of the big data that are available and the new methods that are required. And now you're saying well, even better. If you liked it with four or eight teams in baseball, how much better would you like it if you've got that in each of four or five major sports? And you're saying that the the methods are sufficiently similar that you get scale across sports. Correct. That's super interesting. By the, by the way, you did a bunch of name dropping there for a second. So let me just... <laughs> I can drop more. Let me, yeah. I know you can. Let me just unpack that for a second. And Shane, Shane's sitting here dying to get in. And I'm, I've got to shut up here in a second. But I just got to underscore some of this. So... Luke is your co-founder with Zella. So, yes, and he's our chief scientist. Okay, so, so I mean, a lot of people would name Luke as like, like uh, this is a ridiculous thing to say, but like, like the best person in sports analytics. I mean, it's like that level of regard for the guy. And you're saying that he and Dan were in on the kind of the ground floor with Kirk Goldsberry probably at Harvard back in the day sure. when spatial data first came available. So they went on through a bunch of stuff, but then Luke starts kicking out all these PhD students who all do these really interesting things. By the way, Luke then has worked for soccer teams and basketball teams, and now he's involved with various interesting things. So Luke's heck of a partner to have. Javier Fernandez, if I remember right, Javier is with Luke on that paper. So many people quote are saying, 
Messi creates value even when he's just walking on the pitch. Am I right? Is that Javier right. Fernandez? Um, right. I'm, I'm sure. So he's done many other things as well. But you've 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 recently hired Karim Kassam, who has was longtime analyst for the Steelers, and then he's moved around to some other teams. You've got Kevin Mears, who was longtime with the Browns. We've had Stephanie yeah. Kovalchuk on this show, and I mean, so this is the one of the interesting things about what you're doing, Doug, is that. You've got you've got a you've got an employee who does tennis analytics. She's like building Bayesian models for tennis. And what I think you're going to tell me is that she's got some know-how that you can periodically beg, borrow, and steal and drop into other sports. And that's absolutely it's a really fascinating yeah. proposition. Can you give us an example of a method that you're seeing scale across sports, and because of the way you're structured, therefore you're able to take advantage of it? Yeah, I mean, I. I give you a ton of examples, but you, but you mentioned Stephanie and, you know, she, she has expertise in causal inference and has used those um, tools to help us build models around player availability. Right. And that's something that we've been able to apply in baseball and we're, you know, planning to apply in other sports as well. Okay. We so have, uh, make, take, give us one more level of detail on that. So causal inference, causal inference to help you understand player availability in baseball. Can you connect yeah, those a little bit more? because availability or, or injury status is, is actually latent. We, we can't see whether or not, you know, a player is uh, hurt when they don't play. That might be a decision that the team just decides this is a, a good day for, for the player to rest or that, um, you know, recent performance hasn't been good so that to, to give them a day to reset. And so what we're trying to do is use the observed data they're playing data and injury data to try to understand that latent availability structure. Okay, got it. Yeah, I actually, this, uh, I mean, I guess the question I've been kind of eager to ask you is, it's almost like a chicken and egg question. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to phrase it properly, but um, how much are you guys kind of selling essentially like um, a method, like say, for example, take you know some of that that EPV stuff that Luke Bourne and Kirk Colby and all guys developed. I mean, I could imagine being able to say, you saying like, oh, well, th this method was developed kind of using a very small amount of basketball data. We'd love to expand it to a whole bunch of teams, or like maybe try and transfer it to another sport. But but how much how much is it that kind of you're kind of selling almost like a, a method or technological product versus selling this team of people being like, well, actually just let us look at your data, look behind the scenes at your organization and our team of amazing researchers will develop a new method or product that kind of helps you out. I guess what does it, is it the method and then the application or is it the application then the method, I guess is what I'm asking typically for you guys. Yeah, I mean, it's a little different by sport, right? I think if baseball is an example where, a lot of the um, the problems are well understood, and we're trying to approach those problems in a novel way using some of the expertise that we have in house. Whereas, you know, if you, if you look at American football, there's a lot of new problems that have to be. Uh, it, it, people are still figuring out the questions, right? And I think we, um, you know, we've done a good job with sort of proposing how to think about those questions, particularly in a, in a spatial context with ball and player tracking data. But that's, um, so it's a, it's a little bit of both. We're, we're definitely, when we talk to teams, we, we very much are selling the expertise that we have in-house, but fundamentally what we're, what we're building is an analytics product where 
you know, the models that we develop are the capabilities. Mm-hmm. 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 How, what, can you say anything? And I don't. I want to. I know you don't want to talk about your business in too much detail, probably. But can you say anything about how you found the market for these offerings? How would you characterize the market for these offerings? You started out in baseball, and it makes sense, especially given where you came from. But right. you've 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 moved into soccer. My understanding in, in this year and yep. last year, and cricket. Of course, Luke Bourne is, I think, part of an ownership team who has a cricket club now. So not too surprising. But I know you're going to, you know, you can't be recruiting Mears and Karim and not be going into football. So how do you find sure. the market and the appetite for this, and how does it vary across sports? Yeah, th- th- I think it, that kind of ties to the point that I made with with baseball and football, right? That, different sports are in different places with respect to analytics maturity. And in, in baseball, coming from the Dodgers, we had built a, an R&D group of 20 people across um, systems, data science, and, and, and sports science. And, but that's quite unusual. I mean, we had eight PhDs uh, <laughs> right. on staff. <laughs> so, uh, you know, most teams don't have access to those types of capabilities to right. be able to, to solve some of these challenging problems. And, and so I think what, what Zealous provides is, um, you know, a, a cost-feasible method to have that type of access. Mm-hmm. So, so in baseball, part of our, our story is, is um, you know, we can, we can fill in the gaps where, where things are missing, but we also provide uh, a high-quality a kind of gut check right. for, for some of the um, top-level projections for a player, for example. Right, right, right. And then, you know, and then I think when, when you start looking at other sports, it is more about new capabilities, uh, like football, where, you know, understanding value creation at a player level is still a, a very open space. Being invented as we speak. As we speak, right? And so we have a general way that we think about player value attribution, like starting from being able to take a snapshot of the game and attribute an expected value to that, uh, to identifying change events and, uh, you know, attributing sort of the value associated with those change events and modeling your outcomes. And then the players involved and, and kind of carving that up for the players. So that's, you know, there's a, a pretty well-established history of that in baseball. It's a lot easier in a discrete context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but these spatial techniques that, you know, Luke and Dan and Javier and others have developed are really helpful for extending that framework mm-hmm. to continuous time sports. So talk a little bit about that, because this is, raises this interesting general question about how useful a statistician is independent of content knowledge. So when you have this, these, these spatial techniques that, that these guys developed in basketball and, and soccer, how much football expertise is needed in order to adapt them to the football environment? And where do you get that football expertise? Yeah, I mean, we've been incredibly fortunate and I think it, it fits in with our multi-sport model or people, there, there aren't many contexts in which high level sports data scientists can work on multiple sports. If you want to ha- have access to the most interesting data and problems, you have to work for an individual team, right. which tends to limit you to a, to a single sport. And so even early on when we were just baseball, because the model was always to expand, we ended up hiring people with 
football experience and expertise and basketball experience and expertise and soccer experience and expertise. Mm -hmm. And so now as we've started to, you know, baseball was first year 2019, soccer in 2020, we've added basketball and cricket uh, now. And that's actually what's motivated the the big hiring spree. Um, But we're looking forward to football and hockey next year. And we're really fortunate to have, like you've mentioned, a set of people who are well recognized in the football space who can uh, give us a really good head start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, you're 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 hiring nice people as well. Is that part of your criteria? Like Andy Galdi, I'll just hire one of our favorite people in baseball out of Philadelphia. You stole him, man! Oh man, you got you got you, we got to, we have a different show on hiring at some point, Doug. Well, Andy is great. Yeah, we actually originally tried to hire Andy with the Dodgers when he got the Philly. Is that right? Okay. So, so I've, been... I've managed to keep in touch with him for for years, and and um, yeah, it was great to, to bring him over to Dallas. He's actually uh, helping lead our our basketball. That's fascinating. Um, so so say more about that. Why would you grab a baseball guy to lead your basketball platform? Well, in part because Andy had built an incredible team uh, with the Phillies. So we, we looked at what he had done and the techniques that he uh, had applied there, um, you know, working with very similar technologies in terms of uh, cloud uh, infrastructure and engineering, and and uh, it was a really easy fit. I mean, he's actually done some work with the NBA League office okay. and most of his experiences in, in baseball, but more so he just had experience starting from scratch and building a team. Right. Well, you're, 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 you're talking about, you know, we think, I think about your offering about, about the methodologies and I think about the offerings to the clubs, but you're also essentially creating career opportunities that didn't exist before for people in this field. You're, you're, I mean, for Andy to do that is unusual for, as you said, to have guys who, I don't mean guys, men, I mean people, men and women who can work on multiple sports that doesn't exist anywhere else. And so. Or at that's, least there's not like a, a place where they can kind of go and do that truly interdisciplinary. Like there's not a lot of places they can go and do that kind of truly interdisciplinary kind of research. And it seems like a large part of your business model or at least a crucial component of your business model is kind of making those connections between sports that maybe people haven't necessarily yeah. or, or maybe they've dreamcasted, but you guys actually have the kind of, you know, uh, technology and methodology to actually connect these different sports. I mean, I, 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 you know, I read, I remember reading Luke's paper, that EPV paper many, many, you know, several years ago when it first came out and thinking, oh my goodness, this applied to hockey is going to be so cool. But, (laughs) you know, trying to, again, like just waiting in the vacuum of like, uh, you know, one or two analysts at at each team trying to kind of recreate that and and then then not being able to publish it or anything like that. Anyway, it's, it's, you guys are kind of building a bridge or, or kind of, I guess, facilitating a larger scale kind of transfer of knowledge between sports. Yeah. And that, you know, and I think that ties into the, the career path as well, because if, if you, I mean, some of the names we talked about, uh, Stephanie, for example, when she was at Tennis Australia, she was the lead data scientist and and doing fantastic work, but didn't have the group around her that she could um, learn from and could learn from her, right? Like the the, the peer group. And so to be able to build that uh, at Zealous with, uh, you know, both at the data science leadership level, but even even the junior hires that we've that we've brought in has been really exciting. And that you know, that 
I think both in terms of being able to work across sports, but also being able to work with a broader group of talented individuals, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it has created a really exciting path. Well, you know, it, it, again, I, I joke about another episode on hiring, but there's really another episode on organizations in general. And I know enough about your past to know that you worked for an outfit called Trilogy Software back in the day. And Trilogy was this fascinating company that Harvard wrote cases about, and they ran their organization differently than other organizations. They, they perpetuated the culture. They indoctrinated people. Everything was different. It's interesting. I bet it's interesting for you to be running this organization to be thinking about, I've got all these interesting people. How do I maximize the value they extract from each other and the value they contribute to each other? How can I build the organization? Maybe even especially, how do you do that in a time of pandemic where you've got this organization? It's not like y'all are all going into the office in Austin together every day. But I'm raising yeah, these I mean, questions knowing we don't, can't get into them as much, but they, that, they are kind of fascinating questions I'm sure you think about a lot. Well, it's a, it's a reinforcing loop. And that was one of the things that I learned early on at Trilogy is if you bring together a bunch of really good people, other good people want to work with them, mm-hmm. right? So, so we've been fortunate, and, and, and we have had this, this snowball type effect, which has really played out in, in the recent hiring. Mm-hmm. For um, sure. For sure. Snowball is a perfect. That's exactly the way it has felt this fall. This is why we wanted to ring you up and find out about the snowball. Listen, we're down to just a couple of minutes and I can't ask someone who is doing such fancy stuff in so many different sports. I can't not ask you, okay, where is the frontier right now? Like what, what should, what are we going to be paying more attention to in the next couple of years that we don't even, we're just, it's just now coming into existence. What are the data or the analyses or the types of insights you're generating that are really on the frontier? I mean, you know, we're, we're sort of in this, ball and player tracking phase, right? That, that, has, that has expanded across sports. And, um, you know, it's, it's been, that has existed for a while in baseball and basketball. And, you know, now I, I think it's the first year of puck and player tracking in hockey. Uh, but if you look at baseball, which continues to be a little bit ahead, it's player kinematics, right? It's, it's, it's 3D Play, motion data for the player. Player kinematics. Data. So, so say, say more about player kinematics. So it's, essentially, it's, it's joint and limb tracking. Right? Okay. So it's, instead of measuring, I think a lot of the recent advancements in sports analytics have been measuring players as a, as a, a dot moving around on a 2D surface. And now we're moving to three-dimensional space at you know, 300 frames per second of points on the body. And, and that's exciting because it just, as the data get to be more complex, the analysis that can be performed gets us closer to the coaching context, right? We can, we can talk about things like if a pitcher's hip is flying open too soon or the stride direction or, and and, and have that be supported by statistical models. Wow. You know what? I I think of that in contrast to my telling you that the Massey Peabody ranking on the Buffalo Bills is plus four. (laughs) I couldn't be higher level. Very actionable. <laughs> and you're going to say that the, the angle on the forearm as it rotates past the, the bicep is five degrees to the northeast or whatever. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, but when you look at baseball history, right, the, the, the big jump in the impact of analytics was when analysts could start talking about the characteristics of the ball and could start talking about a curveball in the That's same right. way that a pitching coach would. Yeah, right, right. And now you can have a dialogue at a level that they're accustomed to. You're, so you're really speaking their language, but you're bringing analytics to the conversation. It's so, so neat and exciting. Doug, listen, man, we could do this for a long time. Appreciate your making time for us. I'm sure we'll circle back and grab you down the road. Good luck and have fun with all those folks you've been hiring. It looks like a ball. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. 
Cade and Shane, and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, man. Doug Fearing, co-founder, president of Zealous Analytics out of Austin, hiring up the entire world of sports analytics and offering super interesting analysis across a number of sports. That's been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Had the whole crew in here. Many thanks to Dion Simpkins. Many thanks to Matty Datz. And thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>